The list represents, for me, a whole host of new ways that artists are engaging with images, engaging with the public. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So 2019 is quickly coming to an end, and when the clock strikes midnight this New Year's Eve, it will not only herald a new year, but in fact a new decade. What were the last 10 years like? In a word, intense. In fact, every trajectory that we saw at the beginning of the decade, from the digital invasion of all aspects of life, the gap between the rich and the poor, the bumpy road of globalism, and the onrush of climate change, etc., etc., just intensified, getting more and more extreme. In America, seven years of Obama plus three bruising years of Donald Trump have also yielded some real positive change, much of it, ironically enough, in the past three years, as society has fought a series of cleansing moral wars over sexism, racism, colonialism, and other systemic injustices. In the art world, this progress is reflected in the new Museum of Modern Art, which has made over its collection to give space to previously excluded voices. But stepping back and looking at the broader sweep of art in the 20-teens, what were the artworks that really mattered? To talk about it, I'm joined here today by Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis, who recently finished narrowing down all the art he saw over the past 10 years into 100 key works, some of which might surprise you. They certainly surprised me. Welcome back to the Art Angle, Ben. Thank you for having me. End of a decade? End of a year? What was this Herculean task like for you? Well, I am not a list man. The task to draw up the list of your favorites is a end of the year staple. And it always feels a little bit arbitrary. These kind of lists and rankings are inherently subjective information presented in an objective form. I think that's part of the spirit in which you have to take them, that this is fodder for debate. But on the other hand, it's a chance to look back at 10 years, look at what's changed in art, how my tastes have changed. And that sense, it's a pretty gratifying opportunity for reflection. When you went about putting together your list, you called it the key artworks of the decade, not the most important artworks or the best artworks, the key artworks. What is the distinction here? Well, I wanted to balance a couple of different things. Basically, I wanted to, on one hand, spotlight things that I think are actually good, but then there are certain things I think you have to talk about that are definitely hmm. part of the landscape that if you left them off, it would be a notable absence, and there are certain things that scratch one kind of itch, and there are certain things that scratch another kind of itch. So I really view this as kind of putting together a, a menu for our readers. You're trying to assemble an interesting selection that gives a sense of some of the directions that art went in the last decade. So not only did you compile a list of 100 works, you also went the next step and rank them from 100 sure, yeah. to 1, which sounds to be an incredibly time-consuming and high-intensity kind of process. How did you manage to rank them? What criteria did you work for? Right, right, right. So the way I thought about it is this. I developed for myself basically five categories, five lenses that I could look through, and those were invention and originality, whether something did something new, named a new thing, created a new category, Form or sensory impact, that is, whether something 
was memorable in just how it was presented, whether it felt like it set an intention and realized that attention in, in a way that stuck with you. Depth and nuance, which is whether or not when you come back to it, after that first interest, there are more layers to unpack, more things to see. Symbolic uh, vitality or power, which is how it intersected with the bigger conversation, be they political conversations or just new kinds of sensibilities that are developing. And finally, influence and popularity, which sort of takes it out of my hands and allows me to look at it through other people's eyes, whether they're artists who are picking up on something that has happened in art or the more general public. Because Hmm. this is a decade in which the walls between the professional art world's ability to center taste and the greater culture have broken down in all kinds of interesting ways. Can't stress enough, it's informed opinion, hopefully provoking equally informed objections. So I've got to ask, did you see all of these artworks in your list in person? No, no. I mean, for the most part, yeah, this is weighted towards things I've seen because uh, I uh, try and keep abreast of what I think the most important things are going on. You know, no film critic sees every film that comes out. No literary critic sees every book that comes out. In general, though, in those fields, lists and rankings actually have a little bit more of a communal sensibility because books go everywhere. TV shows go everywhere. Movies go everywhere. So it's still arbitrary, but actually in the world of art, it's even a little more arbitrary. It's arbitrary squared in the sense that art is so local. You're talking about... In, in the main, objects that you have to see in person that are held in a specific space. So, yeah, if you mapped out my selections, it would look a lot like a bullseye, where uh, a lot of darts have fallen in and around the New York art world, where I am based. And the further you get away from my hmm. physical location, the fewer you see. So there are big absences geographically, and I'm Certain. Some of that's my taste and preferences. Some of that is what I've had the chance to see. But I did try and summon together the conversations that had been generative and important. Like I said, it's one of the categories there. So it's a mix of things. Okay. So now let's drill down into the list. There's one piece that I want to ask you about, which I think people might be a little surprised. Okay. Which is... Beast Jesus is on the list (laughs) at number 63. What is that doing there? Okay, well, our listeners may remember this was a painting called Eke Homo, a depiction of Jesus that sort of became a pop culture sensation a few years ago when an 81-year-old retiree decided to try her hand at repainting it, and it became this sort of botched image that, I took on this larger status as a joke. It was parodied on Saturday Night Live and became a meme and all these other sort of things. I think it ends up being a pretty lovable work of art, actually, a lovable work of unintentional surrealism. I Hmm. didn't think that any conversation about the art of the last 10 years would be complete without some sense of the way that art has interacted with the conversation online and sometimes in very unexpected ways. And this really captures that for me. And there is a case to be made that is a very influential work of art. Tons of tourists have been drawn to this town, the town of Borja, Spain, in order to see this work, which has truly become, in a way that you could almost call miraculous, Hmm. uh, a new sort of icon. 
It's interesting because it's a collaboration both between the original artist and the restorer, but it's also a collaboration between the artwork and this massive online community. Yes, that's certainly a theme in the last 10 years, as we'll see as we as we continue um, to look at my picks, that I think this is really the decade when the tale of viral media has come to wag the dog of traditional media in a lot of ways, and that includes art. And I think another example might be number 18, which is Banksy's Love is in the Bin, which is not the sentimental artwork. It sounds like it's actually the self-destructing artwork that took the world by storm when it shredded Mm -hmm. itself when being sold at the Sotheby's Auction House. Well, that's going to be a controversial one. You know, professional opinion varies highly on this. This is the last work at a Sotheby's auction last year. And after it was sold, a mechanism inside the frame of the work of art activated and it partially shredded itself on stage and then was renamed by Banksy. I find this gesture fairly delightful. It certainly had a huge impact. I mean, as people who look at the extremely esoteric world of the art market, I thought this is probably the best thing that's ever happened at a Sotheby's <laughs> sale and one of the few that I can truly say I'm, a, I'm genuinely amused by. All right. And certainly, certainly, one final thing I want to say about that is that the reason why the Banksy ranks so high is because of that first invention originality category that <laughs> my list is particularly weighted towards works of art that named new kinds of categories, operated in new kinds of ways. You know, this was just a very unexpected thing to happen. And that sense, I think, is a touchstone and will be a touchstone going forward. Love Banksy or hate Banksy, I think that people will continue to talk about this particular stunt as one of the all-time weird and wild things that have happened. So let's do a little glimpse of the winner's circle with an old-fashioned countdown. Drum roll, please. Coming in at number 10 is Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present from 2010. Tell me about this work. Sure, yeah. 10 years ago now. This is a work of art. It was a performance stage at the Museum of Modern Art during a retrospective of Abramovich's work. She's a very famous uh, early pioneering performance artist, and people will probably remember it as the staring contest. This was the artwork where she sat in the foyer at MoMA, and then people lined up to stare into her eyes, and it became a huge viral sensation. It became a huge part of the culture. It was endlessly satirized, and the reason why it is such a logical top 10 contender is because it really defined a new category for performance art. Like, performance art was really, I think, up until maybe that moment, thought of as this eccentric, weird thing. If it was depicted in popular culture at all, it was as this joke. And, well, I don't think performance art has completely moved out of the joke category for the (laughs) average person. This definitely gave it a new edge, a new presence as a part of fashion, as a part of culture, and just took performance art to an entirely new level in the popular conscious. One thing that I think is really interesting about this work is that Nine and a half years later, when MoMA rebuilt its building, it actually Mm -hmm. centered its new infrastructure around a central performance art gallery. Mm -hmm. And that was mainly because its eyes were open to the mass popular appeal of performance art through Marina Abramovich's performance. Yeah. 
Performance really moved from the margin to the center with this work. And <laughs> ironically, I think that's partly because of social media, that the documentation of performance through photographs of it had always been part of how people in the museum experienced performance art. And now that so many other people have the ability to photograph and share documentation of it, the hmm. appeal of live theatrical, alt theatrical experiences like this one just became newly central to what museums do. And this was really the symbol of that. So number three is a big deal, both in terms of size and also in terms of its impact. And this is Kara Walker's A Subtlety or The Marvelous Sugar Baby from 2014. What was that? People might remember it as the Sugar Sphinx. It was a creative time commission. That's a public art group here in New York. And Kara Walker, who's an artist who has a distinguished career creating really disturbing works of art about the legacy of American racism, created this enormous sculpture that is really something different. It's made out of sugar, and it's an immense sphinx. It's a celebration of the black female form, and it just drew a tremendous audience. It became a real, again, pop culture kind of event. People came from far and wide to the Williamsburg waterfront in order to enter the space with the sculpture. And of course, the fact that it was made out of sugar was a key component to the concept. This was in a domino sugar factory, and sugar was one of the commodities that slaves were forced to farm on plantations in mm -hmm. America. So it was a real kind of monumental reshaping of that legacy into something very empowering, kind of profound. I don't know if it's unique to this decade that there's this emphasis on the symbolic power of materials. I think partly because we have so much information at our fingertips. Every material seems to be this crystal of all the facts you could call up about it. Uh, sometimes that could become very corny, you know, or a shortcut to meaningfulness. But this was just such an elegant way to bring together a bunch of different strands or threads. The site, which was the Domino Sugar Factory, and Kara Walker's work with images of African-American communities and the legacy of oppression and racism. And it was just a really a powerful, evocative, and striking work of art. So coming in to number two is something that I think a lot of people are very fondly disposed towards, which is Christian Markley's The Clock yeah. from 2010. Tell yeah, me about that one. Ten years ago now and still ticking in the popular imagination. No interruptions, we've got four minutes left. They have some kind of device up there that must be synchronized to trigger off an explosion in Parliament when the minute hand reaches 11.45. So? It mustn't reach 11.45. Just a work that almost feels so emblematic and natural that it almost doesn't feel like it has an author, except that it's the result of a tremendous amount of experimentation and craft from Christian Markley, who's the artist who put it together. It's a large projection, and it's threaded together, film clips. And the magical thing about it, and the thing that I must say that you will not get when you don't see it in person, is that it's set up so that it's all images of clocks, either in the background or the foreground of these films. And he's gone through film history and found clips that match specific moments in time, like midnight, noon, 3.30, so on, so that at every moment, the clip 
on the screen corresponds to the clip you're in now. So you have this really interesting effect when you're in front of this work. And I think that's why it became such an interesting experience that was so accessible to people in a way that a lot of video art isn't. On the one hand, the fact that it's collaging together all this art from throughout history is really conversant with the way people consume images now. We're just picking and, and choosing from a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But that's a very fragmented experience, right? That people are constantly consuming images atemporally out of their time. And this was conversant with that kind of collage mentality, but then it found this way to reassemble them in a way that gave you this incredible sense of continuity, of being connected with the moment that you were in. And it's hard to describe the effect of it, again, but really memorable. And I think a place, as with most of the things at the very top of my list, where the critical consensus on it really matches the public hmm. acclaim for it. I remember the point in the Venice Biennale when I saw this for the first time when I realized that I was looking at the time on the screen, I think it was like in North by Northwest or something like that. And then I looked down on my iPhone and I saw it was the same time. It was really this kind of bracing realization that this was an actual working clock. And this thing, of course, inaugurated the era of the mass popular experience. And that's now yeah. what David Zwerner is plugging into with the whole Kusama phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, again yeah, which again. we talked about a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And um, from 2010, like the Marina Bromwich that we just talked about at the beginning of this conversation, also went viral. And this is really a theme of this list, is that this is the decade of viral art. And that favors certain kinds of things, things that can circulate easily, favors things that are immersive, that give people the sense that they need to share the idea that they've been there with other people so that they can also participate. But it's interesting to look back at this decade and really think of something like the Marina Abramovic and the Christian Markley as hitting at the same moment, more or less in time, and representing in their respective fields, which is performance and video art, really a new kind of popular presence for art forms that had been considered kind of esoteric. Okay, so here it is. Okay, yeah. Number one, the greatest artwork of the decade, according to Ben Davis. And it's a split decision. It is a little bit of a cheat because this is two artworks in one slot, and the artist is Arthur Jaffa, and the works are... Love is the Message, The Message is Death from 2016, and The White Album from 2019. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about these. Well, first of all, I guess I should explain why I'm going to split the top spot. Love is the Message, the Message is Death from 2016 is this very shattering work of art by Arthur Jaffa, who is a black artist who's had a really distinguished career as a cinematographer and as an artist, but was kind of out of the center of the limelight for a long time. And this artwork, which was something he'd been playing around on his desktop, stitching together clips from the internet opened around the time of Trump's election in 2016, and it's about violence against black people. 
And I think it just really hit because it really seemed to be something that resonated with the sense of trauma and sense that the country was waking up to realities of just how deeply corrupted and oppressive its structures were. And this is a work that really symbolized that moment, speaks to that moment. It does something that I think is extremely complex and difficult to pull off because for art, a media environment in which people are constantly exposed to traumatic images of violence, as they have been in the last half a decade, direct experiences of watching people be killed in some cases or brutalized is a very familiar one. And that's material that you can't deny its importance, but it's also material that has a really traumatic status. I mean, just to interject here, I think one thing that makes this work so profound is that these images of police shootings of unarmed Black people, this is footage that is widely seen on the internet and is really traumatic to watch. But what Arthur Jaffa does is he juxtaposes these Mm -hmm. scenes with these extraordinarily exuberant images that are spliced together. And it really gives you this incredibly jarring kind of feeling of joy and pathos and fear at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's a very emotional work. And I think it grips you in that way where it, it offers this sense of experience that's just torn between extreme highs and extreme lows and that you have difficulty finding a place in relationship to it as a viewer. And that gives it a sense of the rawness of the moment. Hmm. Now, Arthur Jaffa said that he was setting out to make a work of art that could communicate very widely, which it has. This is a work that draws lines wherever it goes. It was almost immediately considered a very important work of art. But that also, because it's done in this YouTube collage style, where those mixtures and highs and lows, grainy footage of violence, and then glossy footage of dancers and music videos, and the whole range of image qualities in between, in bringing that together, it does speak to this kind of way people communicate online. And it's all set to a clip of Kanye West music, Ultra Light Beam, which gives it a certain kind of emotion, but also resonates with the way people are soundtracking their own lives. And it's really very moving. So I split this top spot between Love is a Message, A Message is Death, and another work that Arthur Jaffa made almost as a sequel to it called The White Album. Mm -hmm. So he made this work of art about blackness. And then the reason why I thought that I had to share this spot is because one of the things Jaffa said is that he expected black folks to be moved by the works. He didn't know how white folks were going to react to it. And the success of it was such a tidal wave that it, by his account, has left him a little bit disoriented. And the outpouring of sentiment around it, I think partly because of the traumatic times that people were living through when it was released, actually led him to be a little suspicious of, you know, the acclaim from his white audience. So here I am, a white art critic, putting it at my number one spot, and I feel like I have to reckon with that. And he made this follow-up video, the White Album, specifically to sort of turn the mirror back on on his audience and make a, a sequel, if you will, that reflected on images of whiteness in culture. It's also in this same collage style and brings together different images from culture harvested from the internet, feels extremely raw. Whitewashing is in everything. The media, the education, history is whitewashed and biased. 
Education is whitewashed and biased. Entertainment is whitewashed and biased. Images of people espousing racist beliefs, images of people struggling to come up with a vocabulary to talk about racism, white people, images of perfectly innocent uh, viral stuff from the internet that are brought together in this way where it makes you question how they might be received by different kinds of people who are embedded in culture in different kinds of ways when these innocent images of white celebration, so to speak, are constantly experienced as the counterpart to images of white people doing violence to black people. It's, it's a, again, a complex and troubling work. And I think that this is maybe the last thing I would want to say about it is that there's the very old idea about what makes an artwork successful. You know, it goes back to the Greeks, right? To Aristotle, the idea that an artwork should give you catharsis. So sort of bring social tension to the surface, but then release it so that society can feel whole again, so that society can have a communal experience. And I think in the context of a world that's tremendously divided, my reading is that what Arthur Jaffa was experiencing is people coming up to him and saying, I loved your work. This work is so powerful. I wept when I saw it. This was allowing people to feel like through art, they had worked out their issues, that the tension could be released. And I think in my read, he's asking himself, well, I don't want people to feel released from this tension. Like the tension isn't gone. Someone like me should be feeling this tension still. And that's what the White Album is about. And that's why I think these two artworks <laughs> belong here together at the top of my list. And now that you've spent all this time going back through all the artworks that you've seen over the past decade, really sifting through these things, weighting them, re-examining them. Was there anything that surprised you or any trends that made themselves visible from the process? When it came time for me to make this list and really think about individual images, because that's one of the things I was thinking about, you know, what individual works of art created a metaphor or some kind of image to come back to, there are paintings that are on my list, but paintings are a minority of what's in there. <laughs> and I think that's partly because paintings don't circulate in the same kind of way that other kind of media does. They don't go viral in the same kind of way unless it's something like Kande Wiley's portrait of Barack Obama, which <laughs> is on the list at a certain point. But on the other hand, I think that the list represents, for me, a whole host of new ways that artists are engaging with images, engaging with the public. Um, and that ranges from public art projects that involve billboards and the internet to social practice projects that involve working with communities and lots of other stuff in hmm. between. Is that my taste? Probably a great deal. Does it represent a bigger thing? Probably somewhat too. So there's that. And then the other thing is, this is a serious decade. I think that began before Trump. The entire decade has been dominated by the fallout from the financial crisis, been punctuated by Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and the battle um, for indigenous rights at Standing Rock. And those have all left their marks on art in various kinds of ways. It's a somber lot. If you were to stick a thermometer into my list, you know, the emotional temperature would be pretty cool in the aggregate. I think that's true. And then I think that the other thing my list represents is uh, just the breakdown of barriers, you know? And that includes barriers within my own taste. 
There are an awful lot of artworks that I can't deny have really helped define the decade and that are either more technologically embedded or more spectacle-driven than I'm used to. And I only see that trend exaggerating. So on the one hand, you have new kinds of very serious conversations, the new sobriety. On the other hand, you have the new spectacle, you know, the new kind of entertainment art. And the art world is this space that's being stretched out between those two things, between mm-hmm. a new kind of like roller coaster rides, art as mass attraction, and on the other hand, art as trying to engage in whatever kind of jagged and difficult and strange way with a lot of heavy stuff that's coming at us really fast. So it's a great list. I recommend everybody check it out. I think there are a lot of discoveries to be made, especially in the higher registers of the list. Thanks very much, Ben. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, everybody at home. Happy New Year, and see you next decade.